and welcome back to This Week in Voice, Season 3, Episode 1. Today is Thursday, September 13th, 2018. Thank you very much to everyone listening to the show, everyone who has subscribed, everybody who's contributed in its success. Thank you very much to Voice XP, our sponsor, kicking off another great year. This show was recorded in two separate sessions with Kathy Pearl of Google and Noelle LaCharity of Microsoft. We're honored to have them on the show. Their responses were taken and put together, so keep that in mind as you listen to the show. Thank you again for listening. Enjoy. We are very pleased and very honored to be joined by Kathy Pearl of Google, Head of Conversation Design Outreach. Kathy, say hello. Hi there. Kathy, thank you for joining us. Thank you for setting some of your time aside. Um, Share with us a little bit about your role. You've been at Google now for some time uh, and settled into the role. What do you do for Google um, and how do you support what Google's doing within voice? So there's kind of two main components. And I would say the first part of outreach is awareness. Sort of, you know, what is conversation design? Um, Kind of a newer term. Um, What does it mean? Uh, And then how do I apply it? So we're really trying to bring awareness that conversation design is a discipline, just like any type of visual design or website design. If you're building any kind of conversational system, whether it's voice only or whether it's multimodal, you always want to be thinking about the best way to make this experience is to apply good principles, make sure somebody's involved who knows how to do this stuff, um, and you'll have a great outcome. Our other guest is Noelle LaCharity. Noelle, say hello. Hi, everybody. Noelle is Principal Program Manager for Developer Experiences, Azure Applied AI and Cognitive Services for Microsoft. That is a mouthful, Noelle. Walk us through what you do for Microsoft and what Microsoft does for the world with voice experiences. Absolutely. Um, yes, we, there is a, a quite a bit of work uh, involved in that. But to sum it up, you know, I, I'm in charge of managing the developer experience for all of applied AI, which really applied AI are all of the pre-built models, right? Um, you know, the platform I'm currently on is, is around democratizing AI and making artificial intelligence available to every developer. And the way that we're doing that is by creating these models, uh, you know, training these models, and then making them accessible via web-based APIs. I also often speak kind of on behalf of Microsoft AI as a whole, which um, includes not only the concept of these applied AI or pre-built models, but also the concept of building your own models. Um, Because obviously that will always be something that we do. We just don't want you building models that are already available, right? That can already be used, that could save you time, money, resources, and that you spend your resources, you spend your data scientist times, your engi- you know, your machine learning engineer time on the right models. And our first story is from CNBC. Google Assistant and Google Home are now bilingual. I guess from a layman's perspective, you would think that this is something that has already been accomplished by now, but it hasn't. There's incredible technical challenges. Can you share with us um, and the people listening, just how important this development is for Google Assistant and Google Home to support people using this ecosystem and some of the technical challenges that had to be overcome to make this possible. 
Yeah, um, I'm really excited about this feature. We've had a lot of demand for it. There's a lot of bilingual households out there. Um, and as you say, it's a pretty challenging problem because as someone is speaking, you're trying to understand not only what the user said, but at the exact same time, you're trying to figure out which language they're saying it in, uh, which is tricky. Um, and there's a blog post that links that's linked to from the CNBC article that gets in more detail. But basically, one of the ways we can accomplish this at the moment is by uh, the user chooses their, their two languages. For example, I could choose Italian and English, and that's going to make it a little bit easier for us to uh, figure out which one on the fly so we can still respond really quickly. But I think one of the reasons I'm so excited about this is that not only is this something that people want and, and think about, but there's some research to show that we think differently depending on the language we're, we're speaking in. Um, as a small example, somebody I know uh, who's Italian but lives in the U.S., a lot of the times he's using his phone in English, but when he starts thinking he's going to call his mom, he's thinking in Italian. He wants to be able to speak in Italian to his device. Um, I can remember back in high school when my uh, AP French English teacher said, when you learn another language, the table is no longer a table. It's an abstraction because you've removed that, that label. Um, and another interesting study I just saw today uh, they were talking about how German speakers um, are sometimes more goal-oriented uh, than perhaps English speakers. So they had a picture of uh, a person walking and they asked them to describe it. And the German speakers had a tendency to describe the goal. So a woman is walking towards the car, whereas the English speakers had a tendency to say the action, like the woman is walking. So I think allowing people to switch between languages in a way they would do naturally, it's just going to be a better experience for them and get them able to do what they want to do in a, in a faster and more natural way. Language models are hard. Anytime you introduce, you know, the way a human might speak and try to model that in software, it's it's very, very difficult simply because humans are impossible to predict and say things a million different ways. And if you talk to 10 people and ask them the same question, none of them will have the exact same way of responding um, or following up, right? So now, obviously just getting the English language on, you know, in a good, sh a good shape or good place where you can deploy a product is phenomenal. So the fact that you can do that across languages is also, um, is, you know, just another level of, of expertise that you require. But one of the things that comes to mind when I hear this is that it's important that we, you know, we want to meet developers and users like where they are. Right. So if a user comes to a bot, um, for example, I'm from Miami, right. <laughs> I, Oftentimes, there are people in Miami who will start a sentence in English and finish it in Spanish or like sporadically throw in English words where Spanish words are, right? And so when I hear bilingual, that is the expectation that I have. Now, I haven't actually tested this out, but, but that is extremely hard to achieve, right? Because basically, you're merging language models where in most cases, we create completely separate language models. I mean, for example, Alexa, right, has been able to speak German and English for quite some time now, right? And we're, and Alexa's constantly announcing new languages that it's moving into and Japanese and, right? So, so building language models kind of independently is not as challenging as the attempt of actually combining these and allowing you to interchange between the two. So what you're telling me is that if I had a Google Home sitting in front of me right now, which I don't, I could set it to understand, you know, sophisticated Southerner and backwoods hillbilly, <laughs> both. That's uh, incredible. 
Not quite yet, but that could be on our roadmap. I'll have to check in on that one. <laughs> Story number two is a three-parter to a Microsoft and Amazon release preview of Cortana Alexa integration. To B, Alexa start Halo. Microsoft adds Alexa to the Xbox One. And 2C is our voicebot.ai story of the week. Amazon Alexa now has 50,000 skills worldwide, work, works with 20,000 devices, used by 3,500 brands. There's two ways to look at this. Obviously, Amazon's making a lot of strides with Alexa, and they're being relentless. The other story going on across this three-parter here is that we're seeing new aspects of this Microsoft Amazon partnership. And this is really what I want to focus on with you, Noel. Share with us what you can about this Microsoft and Amazon partnership. It it seems like it is going to yield a lot of benefits for people engaging with devices and using voice, whether they're engaging with Cortana and then having access to Alexa or the reverse of that. Walk us through how you, uh, where you sit with Microsoft, view the Alexa partnership and these three stories collectively. Yeah, I'm actually very excited that I ended up getting a week where Alexa and Microsoft were like a big part of the story because <laughs> this is a huge, uh, something that I'm very excited about, super passionate about besides, you know, my role at Microsoft in helping um, promote voice, speech, um, but also vision and language and search, right? I have a very wide range of AI that I focus on. Um, but this speaks to kind of, you know, my, my foundation in artificial intelligence, which, which was really around building skills for Alexa. So when I came to Microsoft, you know, one of my first questions was like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm very, like, I'm an Alexa developer uh, at heart. So I don't plan on that stopping. Um, what is the impact? And, and literally the answer was, oh, no worries, Alexa and Cortana are best friends. And I was like, oh. And at this time, that was not prevalent in the marketplace. These were all projects that were still um, under wraps for, I mean, the relationship had been announced last year, but m- not much beyond that. So I quickly jumped in and became part of, you know, all of the betas, all of the um, early elite testing that we do internally to provide my feedback as an Alexa developer um, on how Cortana you know, how, how that relationship, um, how important it is. And I'll tell you for the very, the first time I was able to go to my Alexa device, which we of course have many, many of them uh, in our house. I go to my first Alexa device and I'm able to call on Cortana and ask about my calendar. And for the first time, my family hears how many meetings I had that day. <laughs> it was like, it was a phenomenal moment where I was like, see, <laughs> I actually do work. Um, it, even though I'm having fun. <laughs> As has been the case from the beginning, Amazon's strategy is clearly breadth. It's let's get into everything we can. Let's do everything we can. We're not going to say no. We're going to say yes a whole, to a whole lot of things and drive the numbers, drive those metrics up. And Google has fought back against that, at least from where I sit, by you know bringing this laser focus to specific sort of um, innovations, you know, like we saw with duplex and like we're seeing with this bilingual uh, innovation. Um, And Kathy, I just want to get your take on just how these stories about Amazon strike you, you know, obviously they're doing great work, but share from your role at Google, you know, how you look at this and and whether Google 
um, is ever going to try to match these numbers or if it just it's a quality over quantity approach that Google's taking at this point to fight back? I think of it in a, in a couple of different ways. Um, one thing is, you know, we're, we're definitely a fan of choice. Um, you know, for example, we re- released eight different voices. Um, so you're not just stuck with one experience. Um, also, like on your Android phone, you can choose whether Alexa or Google Assistant is your default voice assistant. Um, so we want to make sure we can meet the user to do the thing they want to do in the right context. So you might be in your car, you might be in the kitchen. Um, we want to make sure that whatever it is you're trying to achieve at that moment, we have the right medium, the right surface and the right integrations to allow you to do that. Um, we have integrated with thousands of devices as well, you know, doorbells, thermostats, TVs, all those kinds of things. Plus we've got with maps and calendars, the ability to do a lot of those scheduling things and, and more personal things that you might want to do. Um, so, you know, we're definitely interested in giving the user a lot of options to hopefully make sure that whatever it is they want to do, we want to be able to meet them there, um, but also give them choice. I think you're absolutely right in the sense that, right, we have, you know, this relationship is good for everybody, right? The fact that um, Microsoft is, has Cortana as a user experience on so many, I mean, billions of devices, and now Alexa is accessible, that kind of leads right into that, you know, Xbox story. Of course, Xbox would, why wouldn't I want to be able to leverage Alexa uh, in another, you know, Microsoft product? Similar to Cortana, we have Xbox, which also has the ability, um, and lots of people have built, like, augmentations to Xbox to make that possible. But today, now that it's native, I mean, this is a, this is a natural relationship that, should happen. And it's just great to see both companies be at a level where they're like, let's do the right thing for the customer. It's great to have two companies that are so customer focused, right? Where they're not like, um, no, 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 this is my little world and you can't play in it, right? Uh, which they could do. I've seen companies do that over the last 20 years of my career. So I will say that it's all about timing. So we have this incredible um, CEO that has you know, taken over over the last four years, certainly prior to my coming to Microsoft, but a huge part of why I joined um, that really exemplifies how important conversational AI is, how important it is to meet our customers where they are and bring them the technology in a way that as many people as possible can use it from an accessibility perspective. Um, there's just a huge uh, shift, I think, from, and granted, I wasn't here before, but I do recognize that now things that were not entertained maybe five, six years ago, 10 years ago, are now very much entertained, welcomed, tested, right? Research projects start all the time around these types of events and activities. So are there probably some old guard at Microsoft that are like, what are we doing? <laughs> probably, I would expect it. I, I actually wear my backpack. I have one of those backpacks that says Alexa developers on it or Alexa developer, I can't remember. Uh, and people would, you know, I would get the random comment that people would be like, whoa, whoa, what, what are you doing with that backpack? Like, almost like it's blasphemous, right? And I'm like, actually, we're buddies. Like, all my, you can actually use your, that card in on your desk. Yeah, you can call my Alexa skill on that. You need a little mindfulness. You should do that. Um, but it was very, every, but far beyond those unique kind of one-offs, everyone is all, like, we recognize, like, tens of millions of users on Alexa and billions of devices at Microsoft, like that's not 
like I said, it's good for everyone. Everyone wins in this scenario. And from an accessibility perspective, like we open the floodgates for more users to do what they need to do with technology, accept with their voice, um, allow, you know, adaptability, accessibility, uh, AI for earth, right? All of these different really strong social economic um, challenges with the combination of these two technologies, we can do more than we've ever done before. And so I think mo the vast majority of people that I work with and talk with are well on board with that and can't, you know, are glad to see that this is happening. And I also think it makes it a Microsoft people want to work at, right? Because it's the right thing to do and it's the right thing to do for our customers. But that I definitely agree with. It seems like since your CEO has come, come into his role, that Microsoft has been successful in winning talent wars that maybe it wasn't winning six or seven years ago. I think that's a great point. Uh, and I agree with all your other points too, not to say that I don't. Uh, I'm, I'm old enough to remember uh, when the Xbox came out um, to begin with, and even with the 360, people were clamoring, oh, you know, let's have cross-platform play with the PS3. And, you know, Microsoft essentially just laughed hysterically at that and it said, uh, you know, yeah, that's right. Why, yeah. Why don't we not do that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's say we did. And yeah. Not do it. Yeah. 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 Let's just pretend like you never asked that. And now, <laughs> and now it's just, uh, this very different and open culture and, uh, and yeah, no, I, I agree. I think there's the benefits are obvious and, um, it's just from where I sit, I, 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 I tend to ask the question, when are we going to go? from rainbows and unicorns and harmony in this young ecosystem of voice and AI to, you know, and machine learning and whatever else you want to call it to the knives out. <laughs> Nobody's talking to anybody, you know, it's a uh, it defensive sort of stuff. I, Cause every, it seems like every tech shift we've gone through has gravitated that direction. It's going to be interesting to see if we, yeah, right. I'm hoping we did that. Um, you know, like the one thing about conversational AI and these technologies is even though the public is just kind of getting involved, like these technologies and these conversations have been happening for like two decades, right? AI research at Microsoft, um, same thing with machine learning and research at Amazon. Like these things have been going on for quite some time before they've shown up in the products that we're using today. Um, and so my hope is that back then, absolutely, there was much more contention in those conversations, much more laughing, I would imagine, at the idea of partnering with an organization. Like, I remember even just the announcement last year, or maybe it was two years ago now, whenever we announced that, you know, that uh, the, that, Cortana and Alexa were like shaking hands and going to be partners. Everyone was kind of like, yeah, okay, <laughs> let's see what that's going to look like. Um, but now today, having seen the results of some of the products, seeing the results of our customers, like delighted, delightfulness in it. Um, I think I'm hoping this is my desire is that we've matured past that stage and that we won't actually revert, revert back to it. But yeah, like you, I've, I've unfortunately seen that be more of a wave um, than a pendulum. So, so I hope to be part of that um, initiative that keeps everyone kind of working happily together. <laughs> Moving on to story number three from ZDNet, mocking Amazon for low voice shopping numbers may end up looking silly. This is a, a great article uh, written by uh, Brent Leary. Do you agree that in the near term, people are going to shop 
you know, a lot of people, you know, more than our early adopters, a lot of people are going to embrace voice shopping and voice commerce. Or do you think it's going to take a little bit longer than any of us realize? Share with us your thoughts on the state of voice commerce. I think it is going to take a bit longer than maybe some some of the more bullish folks really, really hoped for. Um, I think if you put it into context, if you think about when we changed from the model of going into a retail store and being able to touch and pick up the items we wanted to buy and switching to this model of, say, looking at a picture and pressing a button to buy, I mean, that took time. It wasn't an overnight thing that people were suddenly comfortable with. Um, and same with, you know, like in-app purchases. You know, these things weren't just like an overnight thing where people were like, oh, yeah, this is great. So I think it's even more true for something like voice, especially that voice-only shopping experience. I mean, voice, again, is a very intimate uh, part of us. And to switch to this new mode um, is, is not going to happen overnight. So I still think it will pick up, but it's, it's not going to be uh, a quick thing. Um, and when I think about shopping with voice systems, I definitely break it into the different types of experiences you could have because thinking about a voice-only shopping experience is very different than a multimodal voice-forward experience. If I'm looking, if I want to reorder something um, or browse for something that I'm really familiar with, like paper towels, I don't necessarily need to see a picture of paper towels, and I can be very comfortable with that. And just as a side note, it took me, someone who's been in this space a long time, took me a while to get comfortable with the idea of, of purchasing using my voice, and the first thing I bought was cat food. Um, but Let's say I want to buy uh, a new workout shirt. Um, I don't want to do that with just voice. I want to do that with a multimodal experience, like a smart display. But voice would, uh, but voice would still play a very important part of that. So let's say I'm with my smart display, and I'm like, hey, uh, I want to buy a new workout shirt. And they, they show me a bunch. I'll probably use my voice to filter. You know, I just want to see which ones have the highest reviews. Okay, now can you just show me the blue ones of those? And then in between there, I'm going to be tapping on these pictures I'm seeing of these blue workout shirts. And it's going to be this, again, multimodal experience where I'm using voice in the best way that's most helpful. Things like filtering um, right now, I find kind of a pain when I'm on a website search and I think would be, would be really great for voice. So, you know, to sum up, I think we're, again, in early days, and maybe we forget how long it took to get to this place where we're so aware of now, where it's like one stop clicking to, to purchase something. That took time, and voice is going to take time as well. What obstacles are in the way for voice commerce to uh, enter its own um, and to take that next step? Uh, and when do you think that's going to happen? Yeah, so being an early adopter of Echoes in our house, um, we are also early adopters of shopping. Uh, and I think, I think I have like two different perspectives on that. One, as a developer, I've watched, uh, you know, I've watched through user research how users interact with these devices, the vast majority, not the 1% of the 1%, right? Us who buy Echoes in bulk and like have smart home fixtures and things like, like everyone else, the other, you know, the way the other people live. Um, when they use these devices, it's very unnerving for them to say things out loud, like, you know, even banking transactions, even have their balance read to them, you know, said to them out loud, these types of things, just watching users interact with these devices it's much more of like a social um, uh, ease of use than it is a technical one. 
although there are technical challenges to it as well. But I do find that a lot of customers are just uncomfortable ordering with their voice. And then, of course, we didn't do anyone any service by uh, the random, uh, you know, collection of articles and news uh posts that have gone out around people accidentally ordering, right? <laughs> Which unfortunately happened quite a bit there in the beginning or where people were watching a TV uh, a commercial and it said Alexa, and that was before we tuned our model. So anyone who had an Alexa in their room and if it was like demonstrating the order process, it automatically ordered that on all their devices. <laughs> um, these things, like that does not help uh, these users that are not kind of on the edge like we are, but are more like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to do that because I saw this article that said, like, that's dangerous. Um, until we do a better job of really articulating to the users uh, the security, the privacy, um, you know, how does that, how are they protected in that um, and doing a much better job of really uh, articulating that to them. I, I don't see customers getting any better uh, at that. But on the other side, just from a development perspective, I find that, um, you know, the one thing that I have told retailers to do in the past is that there is a huge opportunity in Alexa in commerce in building a relationship with your users, that there's tons of things you can do without actually attaching them to a shopping cart. Um, and that, and one thing that I do know, again, as a user and as an Alexa skill developer, I will never be able to do it. as e If I have to build a skill, I will never be able to do it as easily as someone just being able to say, Alexa, add paper towels to my shopping cart make sure I don't have an Alexa device on right now. Um, but it'll never be that easy, right? But what can I do as a retailer? Oh, I could actually provide the things that my users are going to my website for every day, right? Um, the things that my users are pinging me on my uh, mobile app for every day. Like I can make that available via my voice. And then I create a brand relationship with that customer. And it becomes more about building relationships than it is this kind of bottom line dollar, like I want to see this money go through. Now, I do think Amazon shopping is going to do very well, <laughs> um, but building retail, like retailers being successful, we really have to be very thoughtful about what we think success is um, and how achievable levels of success actually are without it turning into a transactional environment. Uh, we've got many, many cases of this where companies like GE have seen significant growth in their user base because they created a content relationship building skill on Alexa. And that's really what you want, right? You want to open the funnel and get people attached to your funnel. And then you do the work after that. You don't necessarily need them to go through the entire funnel in an Alexa skill um, in order to be successful. Uh, this is just the UI. So we should accept it as such. Um, but again, that's today. Five years from now, maybe that'll be different. But but there's quite a few challenges in that space. I spent a lot of time thinking about why I don't use voice assistants to buy things. Because I don't. I don't use them at all uh, to buy anything. And I, I've thought about why why that's the case. And you, you really hit on it with the, the, the multimodal comment, you know, from my standpoint, I mean, I can speak for myself. I am so used to the environment that Amazon has created for shopping. I'm, I'm used to seeing, and I expect to see, I, I want to see, other products that people who are buying that product also considered or looked at. 
And you, that's hard to do if it's just a voice only. You know, if you've got a tablet or some sort of you know, Echo Show, you can do that. Uh, but you got to have a screen. You know, I'm used to knowing how to navigate and quickly look at tracking the package with just touching one button or um, making a shipping change um, at the touch of a button because all, you know, any address I'm going to ship it to is all in there. And, you know, I can change it real quick. Um, any card I use is in there. And, um, you know, I, part of me thinks that as successful as Amazon has been, and of course, Google has followed along, you know, really big time this year in, in upping the marketing. We haven't seen, at least again, speaking for myself, I haven't seen really great marketing around the voice commerce sent to the directed at the mainstream. You know, I was watching NFL yesterday and, you know, Amazon's advertised heavily on NFL games um, as well as they have some other, other shows. And um, I think when they figure out how to get that message out real quick, you know, real concise, uh, that perfect use case that demonstrates, Hey, this is trustworthy. This is going to save you time. Um, you're not going to you're not going to wish you didn't do this by shopping with this device. And, uh, maybe we can move forward with it, but uh, I agree. I think it'll be a little bit longer than any of us expected. Um, yeah. And, and just, um, I think your point is, is really good, which is like, there are certain things like setting my credit card number where I really would don't want to do it just via voice. Um, and, you know, we find that half of the interactions with the assistant today include both voice and touch input. So, you know, using it on your mobile phone and things like that. And again, it's about take advantage of the medium in the places that make sense um, and don't force users to use their voice or to tap or type when it doesn't make sense. And when we get all these things together really well and we build up some more trust, maybe that's when uh, this voice commerce will take off. Moving on, story number four. Google is adding digital well-being to Google Assistant and Google Home. Now, I, I did not even know what this meant until I looked in. Of course, it makes perfect sense once you get into it and, and see what this is referring to. It's referring to putting in safeguards, putting in options, putting in the ability for users to monitor their own digital well-being when they are using the Google ecosystem Kathy, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on just how important this is, uh, in your opinion, uh, you know, just to you personally. Um, is this a nice to have for Google, or is this absolutely mandatory? And and you're you're so you're you're pleased to see it uh, being integrated. Um, share with me, you know, your thoughts on Google taking this step to add digital well-being to their assistant ecosystem. I think it's a really great thing to be thinking about. I'm, I'm pleased that Google is actually spending time thinking about this. Um, you know, I went camping this weekend and I turned off my phone at five o'clock on Friday and I didn't turn it back on again until Sunday night. And, you know, those first few hours, I was kind of like antsy, like, oh, where's my phone? Where's my phone? But by Sunday afternoon, I was like, I'm liking this. I don't want to turn my phone back on. And I think most of us will agree that we have kind of this issue with being attached to our screens and we're worried about how are we going to handle it with our kids? How are we going to strike that right balance where they're still technically savvy, but they're not um, overwhelmed and addicted to it. And that's, that's really challenging. So I'm, I'm pleased that this is happening. Um, 
some of the things this is gonna this includes um part of its awareness it's like once you find out you spent three hours on facebook that might be a bit of a wake-up call um so it can it can give you specific information on the activity you're doing on your phone you can set things like reminders like you know what i only want to spend 20 minutes on this app so after 20 minutes send me a note and say you've spent 20 minutes on this today uh maybe you should think about doing something else uh, it can gray out the icon, which has been shown to be a little less attractive. So you're, when you're just aimlessly looking at your phone, you're not quite as likely to tap on it. So I think certainly we, we, we as a human, humankind haven't solved this issue of how are we going to break away from our digital addiction. But I like the fact we're starting to think about it. And this is actually one of the things to segue into why, why I love voice so much. Um, because I think voice can be a help in some of this way. I think about um, example I like to give is at our house at the dinner table, it's no devices, um, but sometimes we have questions. But you know how it is if you're out to dinner with people and someone's like, I'm gonna look that up. They're looking at their phone. You don't know where they're at. Time, there's a time dilation. They don't realize how long they're looking at their phone. Kind of lose that person. Um, so at our house, maybe we have a question like, what was that Sylvester Stallone movie where he climbs a mountain? What was that called? And I can turn and, and say, hey, Google, and ask that question. And everyone hears me ask the question, and everyone hears the response. So it's as if Google has joined our conversation briefly, rather than someone getting sucked away from it. And there's that great quote from the, uh, that, that great statistic from that NPR and Edison research uh, study that came out recently that says half the time people use voice assistance, it's with somebody else. It's got that communal aspect. And so one component of this digital well-being could really be using voice so I can just get the thing I need. I can dip in, get my information without mindlessly scrolling through uh, whatever feeds I've got on my phone. My question for you, Noelle, is, uh, is this an important addition to <clears throat> any voice ecosystem? Is this something that uh, any company producing a smart speaker or voice assistant should be expected to do? Or is this just overreaching into people's lives and completely unnecessary? What is what is your opinion on this? Well, I'm a, you know I'm I'm a mom. I have four children, uh, varying ages from teens to tots. So my youngest is one, my oldest is thirteen, and I have on actually I actually use a, a lot of Google's technologies to help me. They have a, several different tools beyond this that help you just kind of get, not even to control it, but just to give you a level of awareness of how much technology or screen time or whatever you want to call it is being used. Um, I think it's awesome that a company decides to make this part of their product. I also think that it's great if you know, companies that specialize in this type of data can provide not only the information, but some insight as to what, what that means. Um, I'm, I find it's a little bit dangerous just to be like, hey, your child was using, you know, Alexa for six hours today or whatever, um, because I'm okay if my daughter is listening to an Audible book or I'm, you know, like having, I'd have to do that analysis and that, um, you know, there should be a model that understands what's good behavior versus what's dangerous behavior. And I think that's the goal of this technology, but it's, I don't, looking at what I saw in the article, I don't think we're, we're quite there yet, but I do think it's a, yeah, it's a noble effort. We definitely as a parent, I appreciate it. I 
will use it. But, um, but I also take all of that with a grain of salt because I, I expect as our experience, right now our experiences are not awesome on any of our platforms. They're still in their very early stages, but as those experiences evolve, you know, I'm okay. I would be as a parent, okay, if my daughter, you know, she's right now writing a book um, about, you know, a secret owl tomb that was found in Egypt. And she's, you know, it's a fiction story that she's writing. I would love it for her to be able to dialogue that out with a bot, if you will, or with an Alexa skill. And that would help her kind of carve out and create her ideas. Like that to me is not bad and, and certainly not screen time, but it's still technology time. So so I, I guess I would be afraid that people would start to, um, you know, for example, I was at a coffee shop and I overheard these kids saying, oh yeah, my, my mom and dad won't let me, you know, do anything with Minecraft or Scratch. And the other kid was like, really, why? And he was like, I don't, I don't think they understand it, but they said like, I definitely shouldn't, you know, it's not something that I should be doing. And I was surprised at that, but mainly it's because like they are, I live in a, I live up in the mountains it's not a technically focused or area of the world. Um, and I, I think there's fear there, especially fear that the kids would do things that the parents don't even understand. So, so I think there's a lot, like this could be unpacked quite a bit, um, which we obviously don't have time for today, but, but I would be hesitant to use this as like, you're all in like, oh, great. Let me use this to manage the well-being of my family online. Um, because it's just not holistic enough to really do that justice without potentially losing out on some of the reasons this technology exists. And there are some skills out there and, and some experiences on Cortana or certainly in games um, that can really help kids. So I would, I would just be careful with it. I like it too. It strikes me the right way. You know, sometimes you, sometimes you, you, you look at companies like Google or Amazon, or Microsoft, or Apple. Apple's been doing a lot of this stuff lately, too. They've been talking up digital well-being, as they should, because they have a device that you know really ushered in the uh, age of digital uh, slavery. <laughs> I don't know whatever the opposite of well-being is in this case, but I'll call it slavery. And a skeptical person sits there and listens to that and says, all right, that's phenomenal that you're now talking about this. First of all, you're a little late. Second of all, you know, what is your ulterior motive? And you're always looking at it from that lens. But for me, looking at this, you know, Google appears to have great intentions and, um, you know, it, it's all very clean. You cannot, you can do it or not, and, and it can help you or not. And, and there's no, um, it's just all very simple. I, I, I like what I see out of this from Google as well. I completely agree. Let me, let me ask you another question that sort of got on my mind as I, as I looked at this. What is the definition of digital well-being from the standpoint of, you know, how can somebody know if, they're, if they need improvement? You know, um, is there any sort of standard you use? I think about it, you know, I've tried to wane myself from my phone. I've been somewhat successful. I've tried to spend less time on the computer. Haven't really been successful at all. Um, you know, especially within the circles you run in and out in the Bay Area and, and in, in tech, uh, you know, circles, what it, what do you consider, you know, the gold standard of digital well-being? Do you have one? <laughs> I mean, I've got my personal opinion, which is 
I think it's kind of like any addiction. It's sort of like, what impact is it having on the rest of your life and on your friends and family? So if you're getting messages, you know, if you're getting, uh, if your spouse or your friends are saying, Hey, can you put down your phone? Can you put down your phone? Can you put down your phone? You know, that's probably a sign you're on there too much. Um, if it's interfering, you missed a deadline because you were up too late watching videos. Um, I think it's just anything that is impacting your, your other goals in life. And, and also that, you know, there's a lot of talk about the impact it has on social ties. Um, I think with every new technology, there's always this great outpouring of fear of like, you know, when the, when novels came out and everyone's like, what are the young people going to be doing? They're just going to be reading these silly books all day. Um, and, and we always have to examine it through, through the lens of past history, but it does feel like everybody is, is, is really feeling this right now, feeling this, this digital addiction is a real problem. And um, to me, I guess the measure would be, am I having satisfying relationships with other people? Am I able to enjoy the activities I, I really like? Like I love going hiking. If I spend the whole day inside and I'm like, hey, I didn't go outside at all today. That's a problem. Um, and so looking at some of those external goals uh, as well. And not to harp on this a bunch, but I also think part of it has to be like, what content are you consuming? You know, like, because I think you could easily make the argument that, you know, hey, I only spend 15 minutes on my uh, mobile device or on my computer. But, you know, depending on what exactly you're doing for those 15 minutes, I think you can make arguments that one thing is objectively better than another. And I'll give you an example for a very personal example recently. I was up late one night doing some work. This was in the last couple of weeks. And as I will do on occasion, I will roam, you know, to YouTube and I'll watch, you know, I'm a big YouTube fan. I'll watch a, a song or two and then take a break and then get back to what I was doing. Well, somehow, and I really don't understand how this happened. I wish I knew. Somehow YouTube made the suggestion to me to watch a Ted Bundy documentary. <laughs> and and I'm like maybe it's because I had read a book about the FBI recently um, or something or other, and I I started watching it, and lo- and before I even knew it, it was 45 minutes later, and I'm like, what did I just do? And, and this was on a Saturday night. I was up late working. Uh, my wife was sick. She went to sleep early, and after our son was asleep, I was watching this and. Um, and I just, it, it, and, you know, I was like, I got to get up early in the morning. We're going to church and here I'm watching this. And I just felt disgusted that I had watched that. Not because it wasn't interesting, not because I didn't learn some things about the human psyche that I, I that I, I enjoyed learning, uh, or, and some history, but, um, it just not, I didn't need that then. And I didn't, I didn't need it to that extent. And I just didn't need it period. And, um, so I, I, I welcome, uh, safeguards or the computer looking after me for, um, you know, protecting me against its, its own recommendations. You know, I just throw that example out there as a, as something else to throw into the mix of, of something that might help all of us. Yeah, totally. And I think you make a good point about well, what is the content? What are we actually doing? I remember thinking about somebody was saying their teenager was doing their homework and they had like an iPhone and an iPad and a computer and they were all open and they were all on different social media things talking to their friends while they're doing their homework. And to, to someone like me, it might look like horrifying, like, oh, they're just on their, their screens. But but in their in their own way, they're engaging in these great social bonds in some way. So 
it is important to look at the content. I know for me, one of the issues I have is that a lot of my hobbies are computer oriented. Like I love to um, take photos and organize them and upload them for family. And I spend a lot of time doing that or writing in my journal. And it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not doing work. I'm doing stuff that brings me joy, but it's on the computer. And so trying to find hobbies that are not touching the computer is one thing. On the other hand, I also think about the fact that there's all this talk about self-care and take time for yourself. And it's like sometimes taking time for yourself is like binge watching some, some cheesy TV show or something. And so I don't want us to fall into this mode of like, well, only if you were reading, you know, Wall Street Journal articles and, and uh, academic papers on the computer, that's okay. And you can spend three hours doing that, but watching, you know, cheesy music videos is not okay. And I don't want us to fall into the idea that like if it brings you pleasure and it's, and it's, that's what you choose for your downtime and your, your sort of re-energized time. Um, want to make sure people <laughs> don't feel guilty about in- indulging in some of that stuff. Sure. And I think there's a, that's an entirely separate discussion about sometimes we get confused as people and we think, you know, um, you know, we can, we think it's virtuous to sort of shield ourselves from responsibility and, and, and things we got to do when really the only way through a lot of problems is through them. And so it's like, you know, if computers, computers can make us think sometimes that, Hey, just forget about things when, uh, when that's not exactly what, what's good for us. But, um, Kathy, I appreciate, uh, your thoughts on that, that's digital well-being. I think is something that we're going to be hearing a lot more about story. Number five, why does everyone swear at the walrus? <laughs> As people listening to This Week in Voice know, we try to end the show with something humorous or interesting. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, this, um, this is an eye-opener, uh, at least for someone in my shoes. Uh, maybe uh, not so much for you with your experience, Noel. But this company, Walrus, created their own AI, using the term AI loosely, I guess it's all sort of hard-coded in there, but, uh, you know, this, this voice assistant personality thing. Yeah. It's artificial to someone. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's our, it's, yeah, it's, it doesn't sound like, uh, the users are very intelligent from what I read the, the examples that are, are given here. But, um, you know, the, um, this is eye opening to me. Um, the, uh, ways that voice assistants are used and yeah you know we're we're i've been around voice not that long uh but i i've gotten in pretty deep and you know i I feel like i understand it to some degree i continue to be surprised this is a shocking article to me with the way that people are engaging with this voice assistant and what people feel like is is appropriate um to to comment even to a computer and i want to get your perspective on this um you know is this just um something that the walrus and the way they've constructed this voice assistant evokes in people or is this just the way people generally act in their interactions with voice assistants and smart speakers at this point what what are your thoughts as you read this piece and sort of think about this yeah, well, one interesting uh, tidbit is that when Alexa, in early days of Alexa, very similar things happened. <laughs> so can't go into much detail, but this is not uncommon, especially for conversational AI, because the people were called, like, again, this is like the 
top of the heap, like the 1% of the 1% are the people that are going and trying new AI because they're in tech and they're like, what can I do? And for whatever reason, they feel like profanity is like a cool thing to test. Uh, People loved it that Alexa started bleeping out uh, words in like, if you, Simon says a bad word, it would, it would recognize that it was a bad word and bleep, but you only knew that if you tested it. Right. So, so there is this, um, you know, I, I would be very interested in seeing kind of the utterance list and the dialogue that led to that utterance list. But oftentimes, um, at least I've seen this with, uh, Alexa and with skill developers that are building this, that they'll find people are not like getting angry at the bot, but are simply kind of playing around with like, here are all the things that I can say. Um, and let's see how good you are at protecting, right. This kind of content or being aware of it. Um, but another thing is, is I do think like we're in this point in time now we're building these types of applications and, you know, what it's, it's AI. If, you know, the application does something automatically for the user in this case, um, right, providing this conversational dialogue and there's not an actual human building the dialogue as the ex- as it's executed, right? So the fact that it's going into some code and responding back as a result, uh, that kind of qualifies it into this space. But chances are it was built. I mean, I can even tell by like the, the sassiness of the website, you know, like it's kind of a snarky thing. <laughs> so I could see why it might evoke that type of response where people are like, I can say anything to this thing. Um, but the... When I got to the end of it, what I realized was, is that, you know, what this, at least this does for me in my world, is it amplifies the idea that when you build, you're building basically a personality for your business and it now has a voice and will sound a certain way and will respond a certain way. And people, as much as you don't want them to, will, you know, basically make that a human type, right? Anthropomorphize that, um, that personality. And so you'll want to be super careful with how you do that. In this case, I think they do it on purpose, right? They're like, campaign live, you know, or whatever this is. Um, We're going to go in and, you know, we want you to see this kind of non-binary mammal uh, and they kind of advertise it in that way. So, so it's a, I wouldn't say that like every bot does this, right? Like that every conversational bot evokes this kind of destructive behavior. But as a developer of bots, we have to be much more thoughtful about how we're creating the conversation, how we're positioning ourselves from a voice, like how we sound, meaning synthesized voice, including, um, you know, are we going to be male, female, gender neutral? Are we, you know, are we, how are we going to leverage SSML in order to modify how we, you know, how it sounds? If I'm in more of like a church or contemplative type of topic, I should slow that down. If I'm more in a technical or sales field, I should speed that up. And I, as a developer, I should be thoughtful that there are differences um, and that this is just kind of a product of that funny one, um, but a product of that. Like, I'm sure I would hope that they knew exactly what they were doing uh, when they built this thing. (laughs) Kathy, I want to get your thoughts on this. You've got a front row seat working at Google to how the layperson uses voice assistance. I want to get your thoughts on the article, number one. Number two, do y'all see anything like this with Google Assistant, people having conversations like this? Um, Share with me your thoughts and and the similarities and differences between what Google sees and what these folks with Walrus see. 
I, I thought this was a great article. And to me, it read like a recipe book of how to build a chatbot and what to expect. Um, I mean, we've been seeing people swearing at systems since, since back in the late 90s when I was working on IVRs. There, were plenty of, there was plenty of that behavior then. Um, but apart from the swearing, I really liked the, how the article laid out, like these are basic things that people new to building chatbots, voice assistants don't always realize. So for example, hi and hello, some kind of greeting is one of the most popular things a person will say to your chatbot. And a lot of people have no response to it. So it's sort of like chatbot 101, make sure you can reply to greetings. Um, same things about little queries about what's your name and where are you? You gotta have answers for those things, even if it's nothing to do with what your, your chatbot or your voice assistant does. Um, and as far as the, the, the abuse goes, people swearing or insulting, things like that, personally, I'm a fan of the, the idea of the disengagement. It's like thinking about, um, you know, I remember one time when my son was a toddler and we were in the drugstore and I don't know why, but he suddenly started saying, you know, saying, damn, uh, really loudly, which I don't know where you, you know where you got that. And I was like, what am I going to do? Do I run out of the store? Do I like, you know, you know, talk to him sternly? Like, what do I do? And I, I decided to ignore him and he stopped and it, he didn't do it again. And I think with these voice assistants I, that I've seen, it's a good strategy where if you respond in a sassy way or if you kind of like, you know, kind of like poke back, people are like, cool, I'm going to keep going on this and they're going to continue with their abuse. Whereas if you just shut it down and, and don't engage, um, I even saw one proposal that was like uh, after several rounds of abuse, you say, hey, I'm turning off for 10 minutes. I'm not going to respond to anything until 10 minutes have passed. I like that approach um, because it doesn't reward the behavior. It doesn't encourage the behavior and it just gets them to kind of shut it down. We know people are going to do this. So if you're building one of these systems, you got to make sure you're going to handle it. And you need to think before you start, what is our strategy for handling abuse and that kind of thing? And, uh, yeah, I like the disengage model. I can only imagine uh, how the complexity of this type of role will grow as more and more people start to get this technology. You know, I think it gets lost the fact that, you know, we're still in this early adoption. You know, we're coming out of that early adoption phase and now we're getting a little bit into, you know, the mainstream, that next step. And, you know, every step we take, different types of people with different interests, different um, agendas, you know, will be interacting and the data just will grow more and more rich. And um, I don't know, I'm glad I don't have that problem to think about. Uh, you know, it makes me appreciate folks like Google, you know, figuring out how to adapt ecosystems to best serve the most amount of people in the best way possible. It's it's very, it's fascinating. Um, it's why we're sitting here talking right now. Exactly. Kathy. Sorry. Oh, go, no, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, I, I think this is one of the things that people don't realize um, who, who get into this space where they think, well, I'm going to design a chatbot for uh, booking a hotel room. And they think, well, that's straightforward. People will say, I want to book a room or I want to cancel a room. And, you know, this, this is no problem. But then they realize that people go off script just even in the most constrained domain that you might be thinking of, and you, you have to be able to handle it. I mean, I always say that you need to design for the way people actually talk, not how you want them to talk. And I think it's one of the biggest lessons people learn when they start to get into this space and they realize that 
oh, people are not going to respond in the way I expected all the time. And that just comes with the territory. And then you just, you got to build it with that in mind. Kathy, I appreciate you setting this much time aside. I appreciate you sharing your vast wealth of knowledge and experience with not just me, but the audience as well. Thanks for kicking off season three with us. My pleasure. I'm glad to be back. Noel, thank you very, very much for this time today. Thank you for sharing your experience, your vast expertise with me and the audience as well. Absolutely. Uh, anytime. And of course, if anyone wants to connect with me, they can do so on LinkedIn or head over to my website, noellasharity.com. Happy to, uh, to talk with you guys. I have tons of demos and samples that I do. So if you guys are interested in building some of this stuff, uh, I'd be glad to meet you. For This Week in Voice, Season 3, Episode 1, thank you for listening, and until next time.